You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Rania. Hello, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Rania Kalik, a journalist who, over the years, has written for The Nation, The Intercept, Al Jazeera, a bunch of places. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation uh, let me set the context. Every once in a while, I try to have a conversation whose purpose is to kind of illuminate this situation in a, in a certain part of the world. I guess largely for the, for the benefit of Americans and also convey to Americans, you know, how the world might be viewed by various actors and groups in that part of the world, uh, including how America might be viewed. And I like to, when possible, uh, provide some information and perspectives that people might not get on mainstream media. And I think I can always count on you to say something that wouldn't be said on mainstream media, Rania. <laughs> kind of a, that's a, yeah, a, spe- that's a specialty a good of yours. thing to expect. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, what I, I actually wanted to talk about two countries today that have, uh, well, deeply intertwined histories and, and, and an intertwined present. Um, that is Lebanon and Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just to first of all, give people a sense of how connected they are in an ongoing way. Only this week, I, I don't really want to dwell on this in particular, but only this week, there were reports that a couple of missiles had been fired from Lebanon into Israel. Israel retaliated either with artillery or rockets or something. But anyway, there was speculation that maybe uh, the rocket fire from Lebanon had been retaliation for Israel striking Iranian forces in Syria – which is plausible because Hezbollah is a, a big political force in Lebanon and an ally of Iran's. And so anyway, uh, you know, the, the, the interconnections among uh, these nations continue. And, and you uh, have uh, a lot more knowledge than I do of both Lebanon and Syria. You're in Lebanon now. Now, were you born in Lebanon? You, have, you certainly have ancestry there. Yeah, yeah. My parents are both Lebanese. They left at the beginning of the civil war in the seventies and I visited growing up, but then I've been, I've been living here the past four years. Okay. And you, yeah. you speak Arabic, which is a big advantage, uh, in Lebanon yeah. and Syria. <laughs> well, and Syria more in Lebanon. Interestingly enough, you can get around speaking just English or even just French. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Because Lebanon, uh, I mean, Lebanon, especially in the cities, almost everybody speaks either English or French. They go to school. They learn two languages. They either go to French or American school. Syria is much more, you know, had, had much more of a Arab pride kind of thing going on. Hmm. Um, and so it's, you have to, to really live in Syria, you would, you would really need to learn some Arabic at least to get around. You can't get around speaking English or French for that matter. Okay. Uh, so if I go anywhere, I guess I'll go to Lebanon. Uh, well, that, that might not be the only reason to choose Lebanon. It's right also now. easier to get to. Yeah. It's also easier to get to. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little about Lebanon first. I guess the, the most recent kind of huge news event from Lebanon on the American radar screen was, it's been a while now, but it got a lot of attention was when all those chemicals that apparently pretty much everyone had forgotten about in a warehouse blew up to devastating effect. And this was uh, taken as a comment on the kind of uh, corruption and incompetence in the government. Um, 
And I wanted to start off by asking whether there's anything you would add to or subtract from that that narrative. No, I mean, I think that's that's accurate is this was a result of negligence and ineptitude and really a very weak state in Lebanon, you know, where everybody complains about the state in Syria. Syria has kind of like too much of a state, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Lebanon's the opposite. Lebanon doesn't really have a state, it has a very weak state. Uh, there's very re- little regulation, corruption and nepotism are really built into baked into the system in Lebanon. Um, and so it, it, it wasn't surprising that those chemicals were able to be stored at the port that way for so long. There was warnings about these chemicals from people within the government over the years, but it just kind of like got lost in, you know, bureaucratic paperwork. Um, and ultimately, you know, what happened was devastating for Lebanon. So I would agree with that assessment. Of course, there's all these conspiracy theories um, running around, depending on which side of the political spectrum you stand. You know, some people are, are adamant that this was like an Israeli plot of some sort or a Saudi plot. Other people on the other side are saying that, oh, this was the fault of the Syrian government. They were trying to import ammonium nitrate to use against, uh, you know, the in the war that they've been fighting against these rebels. Um, you know, and there's there's really no facts to back that up. It doesn't even make sense for the Syrian government to have done that, have been importing ammonium nitrate from Lebanon because they actually produce their own ammonium nitrate in Syria. They don't need to import it from Lebanon. But aside from that, there's also speculation, which could possibly be true, though we just don't know, that this ammonium nitrate was destined for... ISIS and Al-Qaeda groups in Syria, um, you know, and of course, ISIS and Al-Qaeda have a history of using ammonium nitrate because it's easy to use for people who don't have access to traditional conventional weapons to create bombs. Um, but anyways, there's all kinds of theories going around. Nobody really knows. But ultimately, you know, I do believe that this was a result of regardless of what this ammonium nitrate was doing there or for who it was supposed to go to, it does seem to have been re- a result of extreme ineptitude and negligence by a very weak government. It had been there a long time, right? I mean, one story I heard yeah. is just that there was a ship that had this stuff on it. And for some bureaucratic reason, it couldn't be allowed to leave with it or something. It had to, there was some, there was one story that was sheerly just kind of bureaucratic snafu and ineptitude story. And the stuff had been there, I think, a long time in the warehouse, right? It's, it's like, <laughs> Since 2014, I think. I think initially the ship that was carrying it was, was, uh, stopped in 2013 and it was shady. It was like the ship owned by this Russian businessman. Um, and then of course, not just bureaucracy, it appears as though some Lebanese officials were trying to find a way to make money off of the contents of the ship's once they confiscated it. Mm-hmm. And then that got stuck in sort of a mess of bureaucracy. And so, yeah, it sat there for seven years or mm-hmm. eight or six years. Um, a very dangerous substance uh, that, of course, is flammable and can ignite a massive explosion. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. I would think that rules out several conspiracy theories right there. The fact that it was there for seven years. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you got yeah. some pretty inept conspirators. Right, uh, right. So anyway, okay, so... And as far as, you know, governmental inadequacies of Lebanon, of course, you know, famously, it's divided, you know, in a sectarian way, even formally. Uh, This was a way, I guess, of bringing the country together after uh, the Civil War. But the presidency is reserved for a Christian, as I understand it. The Speaker of Parliament is 
goes uh, is a Shia, is that right? And and then the uh, prime minister is Sunni. Uh, yeah, and, and that's, that's just correct. kind of that's kind of baked in, and it's a way of, of guaranteeing some power for all groups. It, how well does that work? <sighs> I mean, it works well for the people who are in charge, right? Because it's 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 led to this system of clientelism and patronage, where rather than being dependent on the state for services, you're actually dependent on your sect leader. So if I'm Sunni, then I'm dependent on the Sunni party uh, for all of the services I need, whether it's access to hospitals, medical care, all of these things come from my, you know, the sect party leadership. Um, but I don't, you know, I, this is a problem for certainly a problem in Lebanon that has le- that leads to the continued fracturing of the masses of people in this country and allows for this tiny group of elites who really are just warlords from the civil war era who you know took off their military uniforms and then put on you know suits um, and, and all a lot of them became you know hundred millionaires and billionaires as a result of you know basically getting to cut up you know, different industries in the country and take for themselves. Um, but that said, you know, I think the broader problem with Lebanon isn't necessarily just the sectarianism. That's a huge problem and an obstacle to having a functioning country. But it's also ju- it's also the economic system that was built in this country. I mean, the problems you're seeing in Lebanon right now are a result of a cra- of a collapsing Ponzi scheme economy, which could have also happened without a sectarian system in this country. Um, so that's why I'm saying that, there, you know, of course, the, the sectarianism is a problem, but it isn't necessarily the root of the current crisis, though it, of course, contributes. Mm-hmm. The current crisis in Lebanon is a result of the economy that was built in Lebanon after the Civil War by, by two individuals in particular um, with the collaboration of the international community. Um, the individuals I'm talking about are the former prime minister of Lebanon, the late Rafil Hariri, whose son Saad Hariri uh, you know, became prime minister and recently stepped down as prime minister designate after failing to form a government. So the Hariri family, as well as the head of the central bank, who's probably the most central figure, uh, no pun intended, to this, this economic collapse, Riyad Salemi. Um, this guy created a system, uh, where the Lebanese economy, in order to peg the Lebanese currency, the Lebanese, uh, lira or pound, to the dollar, which he did, required a constant inflow of money from outside, a constant inflow of money from outside. And he was doing something really uh, strange, which is, you know, in most countries, I'm not an economist, but economists explain it to me this way. In most countries, it's the central bank lends money to commercial banks. Or is the one doing the money lending? In the case of Lebanon, it was the commercial banks lending money to the central bank to then finance imports for the country. And I mean like imports like fuel, medicines, anything, toothpaste, anything the country was importing. And I mean Lebanon has been a very uh, import-dependent country. It produces almost nothing and imports everything. Um, and so in order to continue to finance these imports at subsidized rates and to maintain the local currency pegged to the U.S. dollar, uh, you ha- you needed a constant inflow of billions and billions of dollars from outside. And the way that that money came in was by attracting the money of Lebanese expatriates. Lebanon is famous for having, mm-hmm. I think, a bigger population outside of the country than inside of the country due to the civil war. And Lebanese people around the world, uh, there are many successful Lebanese business people. 
Um, they're known for being, you know, uh, wealthy across the world. So, you know, this was kind of like a, an advertiser. It was marketed this way of, you know, you can support your home country by putting your money here. And the benefit of putting your money in Lebanon is you'll get higher interest rates uh, on your deposits. So like, whereas at Goldman Sachs in New York City, you can get like 1.5% or something, which I think is pretty high. In Lebanon, you could get 2%, right? And that's actually extraordinarily high. But and that this money's got to come from somewhere right well I mean, that's the ponzi like, that's why it's, that's why it was a ponzi scheme certain circularity here scheme. now i would think before the civil war tourism had been a huge industry right. in lebanon right it was known as the place to go in the arab world kind of for westerners as you said yeah. language is not a problem um but ever since the civil war uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Beirut became synonymous with kind of chaos and devastation, uh, during the civil war. And so, so much for the, the tourism biz. It, can you give us, um, just a, if somebody, uh, asks you to, to, to give just like a, a two minute refresher, like on the civil war? I know that's asking a lot, but like for, <laughs> for people who weren't paying attention, like how did things, fall apart? I mean, that's a hard question, especially for me. The Civil War, the problem with the Civil War in Lebanon is there's no, even in the country, there is no ultimate like explanation or understanding on a national level of what happened, Hmm. why, who lost, who won. Everybody has a different narrative based on their sect and what political party their parents or grandparents or themselves are affiliated with. In many cases, it's their parents and grandparents because Lebanon's younger people are, are fairly apathetic and don't really like any of the political parties, but they still have internalized the narrative that they grew up with. It's not taught in schools. I mean, imagine that. Imagine there was a war. They don't discuss the civil war no. in schools. No. It's not taught in schools um, because it's too controversial because everybody has a different opinion. Uh, so you really only understand the war through the lens of your parents. Um, or if you pick up a book and read the book, it depends who wrote it. Mm-hmm. So the, it's really – with the, the, the Lebanese Civil War is difficult because there isn't really – like it's, it depends who you ask, right? The left, leftists – their narrative, which I, you know, tend to sympathize with because I am a leftist, their narrative is that the war ultimately started because it was an international attack with the help of the Syrian government and the Americans. It was an attack on the left in Lebanon, which was closely tied with the Palestinian um, liberation movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how the war started. It spiraled out of control. I mean, whenever a war starts, like people turn to whoever's closest to them to, de- to defend them and protect them. And you have the rise of militias and and all of these things. That would be the left's narrative. The right-wing narrative, the right-wing Christian narrative in Lebanon is it's all the Palestinians' fault. The Palestinians were firing at the Israelis from Lebanese territory. They were launching these 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 campaigns to get their land back from Lebanese territory. Um, and they were also brutalizing the Lebanese. And ultimately, there had to be a response. That's why they were attacked. They started it. And then when the Israelis came, they were just helping us get rid of the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So there's that narrative. Um, and then there's the you know, there's the the war in Lebanon was more Muslim Christian, like between Muslim Christian, but the, also the Druze and the Christians fought a lot. So there's a narrative between them about who was right and wrong. I mean, it really depends who you ask. But 
That said, the war went on for 15 years. Um, it had different phases, many massacres. And like I mentioned, a lot of the people who were responsible for um, or, or the leaders of these various militias, regardless of their uh, ideological, their ideological uh, character, ended up after the war was over becoming the leaders of the political parties affiliated with those militias. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we have now. The Civil War also, you know, brought about the creation of Hezbollah. Um, Hezbollah didn't exist before the Civil War. It came into existence to basically fight the Israelis who had uh, who had invaded and occupied southern Lebanon quite brutally, much in the same way that they've done to Palestine. But the Israelis were ultimately in pursuit of the in pursuit of the Palestinians, I gather. In pursuit of the Palestinians, and also there was a project for Greater Israel that had a little bit to do with that as well, like Southern Lebanon. Part of the project of the Greater of Greater Israel did include Southern Lebanon, but there was a resistance force there, Hezbollah, that you know pushed them out violently uh, with armed struggle, and they're very proud of that, and that's one of the reasons that Hezbollah continues to be so popular among the population of Southern Lebanon, mm-hmm. particularly the Shia population of Southern Lebanon, who suffered the most. I mean, the Israelis. You know, they ran torture prisons. They um, committed several massacres. Well, the, the famous and pretty uncontroversial one, I think, because Israel has basically acknowledged it, is the Sabra and Chatilla uh, massacre, right? Where uh, – so Israel well, – So the Sabra and Chatilla, just to clarify, was separate from Israel's uh, occupation of southern Lebanon. That was Palestinian – Refugee camps where, uh, the but Palestinian, in Lebanon, in Lebanon, yeah, right? in Lebanon, in Lebanon. Uh-huh. and it was committed not by the Israelis. It was over, the massacres were overseen by Ariel Sharon specifically. Yeah, he let, but, the, he let Christians into the refugee camps knowing, Christian forces knowing basically what they were going to do to the Palestinians. Yes. Yeah, he met, he let in Christian fascist, a fascistic Christian force called the Katayib. Uh, into these refugee camps and they spent like two days just like slaughtering men, women and children. And the refugee camps were not able, nobody was able to defend themselves because they'd been disarmed. This happened after they were disarmed, oh. after the Palestinian groups, the PLO were pushed out of Lebanon and went to Jordan um, as a part of a deal that the Americans and Israelis were involved in. And the Lebanese as well. And so ultimately they were left defenseless. And then these fascist militias went in and just completely slaughtered hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, you know, I mean, like with machetes and, you know, also shootings, awful, awful, you know, rapes, awful, everything that goes, all, all the awful things that come along with war. And the, and of course the Israelis knew this was happening, gave them cover. Um, and Ariel Sharon was a commander, was the commander when this happened. But yeah, this was also a part of this, 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 uh, coincided with the Israeli invasion and occupation of Lebanon. Uh, but the Israelis ultimately continued to occupy Southern Lebanon until 2000. And so throughout the nineties, Hezbollah, uh, became very, uh, gained a lot of prominence and, uh, support from the Southern Lebanese population to push the Israelis out. And ultimately they succeeded. Um, and they succeeded in doing that again in 2006 when there was a war with Israel. Uh, and so that's, you know, Hezbollah remains very, very popular among its base as a result. Of course, the Israelis and Americans hate them and call them terrorists. Um, but you know, it, it, but again, there's a, in Lebanon itself, like much like the civil war has different narratives depending on who you talk to. There's also, Half the population in Lebanon, you know, is like pro-Saudi, pro-American. The mm-hmm. other half is pro-Hezbollah, pro-Iran. So there's also that 
back like, and forth. Like, what would you say on. is the percentage of the population that's kind of firmly pro Hezbollah? I mean, I haven't done a poll, but you know, definitely the Shia population is like ninety percent very pro Hezbollah, and, and, they and that's make about up, a third, or the Shia about a third of, of more the than population? a third. I think they're, more. I think they're more than a third. I think yeah, they're, 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 they're plurality. They have like a majority plurality in the country, so even a third would be a majority of. A plurality, sorry, a plurality. Um, but definitely then and of them. And of course, there's like certain Christian villages and groups that are supportive of Hezbollah for different reasons as well. And of course, Sunnis are not that supportive of Hezbollah. Mm. They see them um, as like, you know, big bad Shias. That has a lot to do with media coverage in the region. Now, you said and, your perspective is informed by being on the left. What is your sectarian heritage? My parent, my family's Druze. Um, okay, and that's an interesting category, right? Like, tell, explain yeah. Druze. Because <laughs> so, Druze, I mean, like, <laughs> one interesting factoid I think about Druze are don't in Israel, uh, by and large, Arabs don't serve in the military, but don't some Druze serve in the Israeli military? Do I have that wrong? There's something, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the, the Druze, there's Druze in Israel. The Druze is, okay, so it's a minority religious group that exists in the Levant, in Israel, uh, or Palestine, Israel, whatever you want to call it, um, in Lebanon and in Syria. Uh, I don't know if Jews communities that exist outside of there unless they moved from these areas, um, like my family did and are living in the United States or some other country. But that's where you'll find the Druze. They're a minority sect. Um, they are a branch, I believe, of like Shia Islam. But the majority of Druze can't really tell you much about their religion because they're not they don't read the book. They don't go to any sort of, you know, temple or church or whatever. Um, but the main, the dominant ideology of, of, of the Druze is like they believe in reincarnation. They're monotheistic. Um, they tend to, because they're a minority, and you'll see this with a lot of minority groups in this region, they tend to support be supportive of the state regardless of the country they live in. So there isn't like a transnational Druze identity or political like leaning. The Druze in Lebanon are like probably 75%, you know, I'm just judging based on, you know, uh, my own relatives and the kind of sentiments I hear from them. But they're, I think around 75% very supportive of Walid Jimblat, who's like the Druze sect leader of the uh, of the PSP, the Progressive Socialist Party, which is neither progressive nor socialist, but that's another story. Um, and then there's the Druze in Syria who live m mostly in an area called Sueda, which is in the south of Syria and the Golan as well. Uh, and they tend to, they're not super hardcore loyalists, uh, when it comes to the Syrian government, but they are pro state because they're a minority group. They were threat, they were really threatened by the rebel groups that were trying to impose like Islamic religious law around them because they're a minority group. They were uh, at risk of either being forcibly converted or killed. Uh, so they were very, they've been supportive of the state in Syria uh, throughout the civil war there, which is the opposite of what you'll hear from a lot of Druze in Lebanon, for example, who will support what Willie Jim Blut's position was, which was you should support the rebels, even if they're Al Qaeda. Hmm. Um, and then there's the Druze in Israel, Palestine, who, you know, there's different groups of them, um, but they tend to live in more rural areas. They, a lot, most of them have aligned themselves again with the state. So they serve in the police. They serve in the military. Mm. I, they don't even really, that, that, that side of the Druze in Israel, Palestine don't see themselves 
as Druze or as Arab, they see themselves as like Israeli Druze. But then there are those who live in the Golan who consider themselves Syrian still. They refuse to take Israeli citizenship or identity papers. And they, they like to are hardcore, just consider themselves to be Arab and Syrian. So there's no, that's what I mean. There's no like, uh, there's no, you know, homogenous identity among the Druze of this region. Mm. Okay. So I want to, I want to talk about Syria before we go there. If there was one thing you could kind of tell Americans say about Lebanon that you think they probably don't understand, some of which we may have already covered, but, you know, and that you think it would be valuable to know, might even be good for Lebanon for them to know it or something, like what would it be? The U.S. has played a very destructive role in Lebanon. It meddles in this country endlessly. You can look at WikiLeaks to see just how much it meddles. It's continued to meddle the ambassador in Lebanon. Uh, completely breaks diplomatic protocol all the time and, you know, uh, you know, provokes the political party she doesn't like. Lebanon is currently in this economic collapse that was caused by actually America's allies in Lebanon. That's who was the cause of this economic banking in, collapse. Which, which ones and in what way? The, the head of the central bank, Riyad Salami, very okay. close ally of the Americans and in fact participated in helping the Americans uh, make sure that their sanctions against Hezbollah kept Hezbollah out of the banking system, oh. which is, you know, that's the irony is, is this economic collapse is a result of a banking system that Hezbollah is largely not even a part of because of U.S. sanctions. So they're actually one of the least culpable parties in terms of the economy crash. And, and maybe we should say, because uh, Americans may miss this, I mean, they hear about Hezbollah as a group designated terrorist by the U.S., but it is a full-fledged functioning political party in Lebanon that does a bunch of stuff political parties do, and I assume provides uh, services, public services for parts of the, you know, does various stuff, right? So it's not, it's yeah. like, I, I, I mean, how do Lebanese, well, of course, it depends on what sect they're part of, how they think of Hezbollah, but I assume a lot of Lebanese, when they think of Hezbollah, they don't think of a guy with a gun first off necessarily, no. right? Well, yeah, it depends who you ask, right? But of course, right. the Hezbollah is a very, uh, one of the biggest political parties in the country. They actually are a part of the ruling coalition that swept elections back in 2018. Um, and this is, you know, they were democratically, they were democratically voted into power. Um, Lebanon does have elections and does function as a parliamentary democracy. Uh, but yeah, they're portrayed as this terrorist group. But for a lot of people, they see them as a group that's protecting them, especially if you're Shia in Lebanon. And I'm not just talking about against Israel, though that, that of course is important because Israel has been a, an aggressor towards Lebanon. Uh, but also when it came to Syria, you know, Hezbollah protected the Lebanese border when al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria and its uh, allied rebel groups were coming into Lebanon. There was a fight. To, I mean, they they would have come further into Lebanon had it not been for Hezbollah. Part of the reason Hezbollah got involved in the war in Syria, the narrative you'll hear from the Americans is they went to go protect the evil dictator Assad. But actually, one of the big reasons that they got involved uh, back in 2013 is because the war in Syria became an existential threat to the Lebanese. You had genocidal Salafi jihadi groups who were telling you they want to kill Shias. That was the majority. That was the first, you know, on the on the list of priorities. That was up there was genociding Shias. Um, and this is the, also, now they were based in Syria primarily, but it, this was perceived as a threat by Shia in Lebanon. 
Well, it was perceived by a threat by Christians in Lebanon too, and it was for per- everyone. Actually, Sunni too was perceived by a threat by everyone in Lebanon. So Hezbollah actually fought off these groups at the Lebanese border. They entered Lebanon. They didn't stay in Syria. The Syria-Lebanese border is very easy to cross. Hmm. It always has been. I mean, Lebanon, you know, it used to be one whole region where people didn't really pay attention to borders. Those borders were drawn by the British and the French when they, you know, cut the Middle East up as spoils for themselves after World War One. So there's people have family like right across the border. Like it's a border that was, you know, put there by human beings. It's not natural necessarily. So they, they, they did come into Lebanon though. Um, and stage attacks in Lebanon, Shia mosques in Beirut were blown up. Shia areas were blown up by these groups. So the war in Syria became an existential threat to Lebanon as a whole, but particularly to Shias and Christians. Um, but of course, Sunnis were victims of these groups too. It's just they didn't kill you right away if you're Sunni, right? So, so this is before the kind of, uh, what Westerners would call the intervention of Hezbollah in Syria. And, and the, and the standard narrative in the West, I think, is that Iran encouraged Hezbollah to intervene in Syria. Um, and, and that's pretty much all you hear, but it sounds like you're saying that, although certainly Iran supported, uh, the role of Hezbollah in Syria, there was already, uh, kind of intrinsic, um, animosity and, and a sense of threat uh, yeah. that, that, preceded, that preceded the intervention per se. Of course. And I would say that for Iran as well. I mean, these countries did, they of course were allied with the Syrian government and didn't want the Syrian government to fall. But people also have to understand these countries as like any country in the world, caring about their own national security and the security of their own borders. That's totally normal. And these groups posed a threat to Hezbollah in Lebanon posed a threat to Lebanon as a whole because Hezbollah is, at the end of the day, a Lebanese group. Um, their their priority, their main priority before regional issues, their main priority is protecting the integrity of Lebanon's borders. And the same goes for Iran. Iran's main priority, like any other country, is to protect its own national security. And when there's a growing threat from Salafi jihadist groups that perceive you as their enemy and are telling you they want to kill you, and I don't just mean she. As I mean, they saw Iran. They wanted to. They were saying, "We want to go. You know, we want to take down Iran. Like we want to. We want to take over Lebanon. We want this Islamic caliphate, right?" Um, yeah. When you, when you're hearing this, it's it's only natural that you would want to make sure these groups are do not win. Um, and so that was the thought process behind the intervention of countries like Hezbollah and Iran, and of course, you know, also helping their ally, the Syrian government. Uh, it's important to have allies in the region, and the Syrian government has always been an important ally, especially for Hezbollah, uh, especially for Iran too. Yeah. So, well, I think you know, it these... was it was the only country that supported Iran during the Iran Iraq War. I think, right? Yeah, I mean, in the and, region, and Iran, of course, like maintains that alliance that 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 didn't mean a lot to Iran um, till this day, and that's one of the reasons why they will continue to support the Syrian government. But there's also this view that they're a part of this axis of resistance to U.S. imperialism uh, as carried out by, you know, America's client states, as they see it in the region, right, Israel and Saudi Arabia. So and, you know, it's interesting now is you also have this Iraqi element, which is the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces, which the Americans often describe as being Iranian backed militias, when actually what they are is Iraqi uh, is an, it's an Iraqi paramilitary group that's been integrated into the state since they helped fight and defeat ISIS. They are Iraqi. They have an Iraqi agenda. That agenda 
does oftentimes align with Iran's because they have close ties with Iran, but they are an Iraqi group. They, they are angry. The U S maintains a presence in their country and they really have become a part of this so-called axis of resistance. So, uh, you know, from Iran to Iraq, to Syria, to Hezbollah in Lebanon, they do view themselves and the Houthis in Yemen. They do view themselves as a force of resistance to imperialism. Yeah. It's funny. We just, uh, you know, I put out this uh, newsletter called the non-zero newsletter and we just ran a piece last week uh, by Connor Eccles on this question of what the word, the word proxy, the word Iranian proxy. And, and, and it isn't that Iran doesn't support, uh, militias in Iraq. It's just that it doesn't control them completely. And there are times when their interests diverge. And for example, there are, uh, credible reports, uh, an Associated Press report, that Iran had been asking the militias to kind of stand down at one mm-hmm. point during the nuclear negotiations. Yes. And they just said, no, right, we're going to keep firing on American bases because it's that know, important it's, to us. That's absolutely true. And you know what's so ironic about that is one of the reasons that like they are less likely to listen is the U.S. killed the commander that could keep them in line. Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. He was killed alongside Qasem Soleimani. He was a, I think, the second in command of the popular mobilization forces. And he was a revered figure. And part of these, the reason that these groups, these Iraqi paramilitary groups are so angry at the U.S. and continue to uh, hit U.S. uh, positions uh, with rockets in both Iraq and now we're seeing that happen in Syria is because one, the U.S. keeps hitting them um, and killing some of them, but also because they are angry the U.S. is still in Iraq and they're really, really angry the U.S. killed their commander. Mm-hmm. Like they're 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 very angry about that. Um, and so it's an that's an Iraqi like you mentioned, like the Iranians have been trying to say, please, like, stop. But they're not proxies. Proxies is not the right Word just like the Houthis in Yemen aren't proxies. The Iranians right. support them, Hezbollah supports them, but they have they have aligned interests, right? There, I would call them more partners. But proxies is just not the right word. Proxy suggests that Iran says go and they go. That's not how it works, right? No, like when you're fighting a local war, there's just a limit to what any outside actor can tell you to do. It's like, right. you know, it's like life and death. <laughs> it's like, right. You're going to, you know, it's also like the Israelis, like nobody would call the Israelis proxies for the Americans. They're a, they, they, you could maybe make the argument they're a client state in many respects and more so maybe with Saudi Arabia, (laughs) but like the, the Americans weren't telling the Israelis to bomb Gaza. That was a local Israeli interest, like it or not, that was concocted inside the Israeli government. They came up with that plan. In fact, the U S didn't want them to be bombing Gaza, but they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and didn't do anything about it. But it's like that. It's, you know, just because somebody supports you materially because they have an interest in you winning doesn't mean they're calling the shots. Right. Um, yeah. So all, all politics is local, as some famous American uh, <laughs> politician said. Uh, not only local. You know, there is there is Iranian support. But again, it's important to appreciate the degree of autonomy that these uh, various right. groups have. So let me uh, just a qu- one more quick question about this issue of uh, Hezbollah's role in the Syrian civil war. Um, I had heard that uh, there was tension over that role in uh, Lebanon, that there were, you know, presumably non-Shia primarily who 
worried that Hezbollah's role was drawing uh, more military action in the direction of Lebanon, that there wouldn't have been as much military action on the Lebanese side of the border if, if Hezbollah had kept a lower profile or something. Was there, I assume there was some internal political tension within Lebanon over the role of Hezbollah in the Syrian civil war? But that might be what people said. But what they actually meant is they wanted the Syrian regime to fall and they wanted the rebels to take over. They wanted a more uh, a government in Syria that was aligned with their side of the political spectrum mm. rather, rather than Hezbollah. In fact, the war in Syria was helped uh, by weapons smuggling from people in the future party, in the um the Saad Hadidi's future party, which is like American and Saudi backed. I mean, American, Americans specifically provided all the PR consultants for the future party all throughout the years since it came into being. Um, and so, you know, there was, there was deep involvement from this party. In fact, um, one of the men who was smuggling weapons on behalf of Saad Hadidi inside the future party was actually like a very corrupt Shia businessman, ironically enough. Um, but there was Lebanon was involved in the war in Syria from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like you can't say that Hezbollah is when Lebanon first got involved. There was weapons being smuggled into Syria by political actors to benefit the rebel cause to overthrow the Syrian government from the very from as soon as the the, the situation. And, and the armed. weapons were coming ultimately from I mean, or, or the financing of the weapons was coming ultimately from I, I think. Interestingly, well, interestingly, yeah, there was so, some coming from Bosnia. <laughs> really? Yeah, there Just was like coming some, through yeah. Bosnia, right? I mean, you know, from like old Bosnia. I mean, old weapons from Bosnia. I'm not sure, like oh, the they exact were oh, route. they were Bosnian yeah. weapons. I see. Yeah. Uh, that is old. Um, from the so, Bosnia. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, various places. I mean, I mean, one of the weird things about that whole conflict was uh, the Americans, um, on the one hand, uh, wanted to defeat ISIS. On the other hand, wanted to defeat the Syrian regime, but the mm-hmm. Syrian regime wanted to defeat <laughs> ISIS. So it was kind of a, you know, so, and the America, of course, was fighting the war, well, by proxy, if the, uh, as, as, if the, if that word fits, but in any event, uh, by, by funneling weapons and, uh, into Syria. Um, but it was, that's not a very efficient war effort when you're, you know, you know, when you're, when you're fighting both your enemy and the enemy of the enemy of, of that enemy and you consider them both enemies. It was just a, it was just kind of a crazy I mean, mess. This was the big contradiction of the war in Syria, especially after the rise of ISIS, right? I mean, from the beginning, um, the Syrian, the Syrian uprising, you know, once it became armed, which was quite quickly, um, it wasn't the outside, the outside funding and arms didn't really start to come in until late 2011, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was always jihadi. It was always Salafi jihadi. You know, anybody who tries to tell you there was some, there was a spectrum, right? There was like extreme to less extreme of armed groups I'm talking about. But anyone who tries to tell you there was an armed group that wasn't jihadi is like lying to you. It's just not true. That didn't exist. Hmm. Um, Cause that so is what the all- Americans say emphatically. I was listening to this, uh, an Aaron Mate, uh, podcast with this, uh, on his pushback podcast with this, uh, he had been American ambassador at the time. The name escaped Robert me, but he, Ford. Robert yeah, exactly. Ford. It was, it was an interesting conversation, but he was insisting like maybe some of our weapons wound up 
in jihadist hands, but the people we gave them to don't fit that description, right? I mean, that's I the mean, official. The lies, the lies, the lies you have to tell yourself. I mean, I think that I don't, I don't, I don't think he's lying when he says that. I think he really believes that there was a noble cause the U.S. was trying to help, and you know, there were people who presented themselves to the U.S. to people like him as, oh no, we're secular, we want a democracy, but that's not what they were saying to their people, their 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 soldiers. It's not what they were saying to ISIS and Al Qaeda who they were working with and who had they had an Islamist ideology with. Um, and at some point they knew. I mean, at some point you would have to be an idiot not to know. And I just mean, you know, if you're meeting with these people, they have a certain way of speaking. They have a, especially from the Iraq war days, you know, you should, if you've spent, if you had spent time in Iraq, you would know how to spot a Salafi jihadi. Uh, there's a certain way they dress. There's a certain way they groom. There's a certain way they speak. Um, but also the Americans were dealing also with the sort of Syrian and exile people that they were trying to replace Assad with. And maybe they really, you know, people like Robert Ford probably did convince themselves that the people who are like this are the people we're arming on the ground. But that just wasn't right. the case. And we know that from people who were on the ground at the time speaking to these people. I mean, Rania Abu Zaid, uh, you know, has, has a book she wrote about this. She was on the ground in all of these places across Syria where the government was pushed out in the very, very early days. And she was telling you the character of these people. And this is not somebody who's pro-government. I mean, her book has been lauded by pro-opposition types all over. So it's not even me saying this. This is what's been recorded by journalists, by people who were there to document what they were seeing and who they were speaking to. But, you know, that said that the policy in Syria ultimately ended up leading to the rise of ISIS. I don't think it was intentional, but what happened is, you know, you're arming and funding these Salafi jihadist groups who are then pushing the state out of areas across Syria um, and taking over and, you know, it creates these power vacuums and who ends up taking over is the people with the, you know, the most fierce fighters with the best right. weapons. And ISIS you know, at the same time, you had Al Qaeda in Iraq that had become, you know, is the Islamic State in Iraq um, is seeing what's happening. They want to get in on the action in Syria. They want to establish control over areas in Syria as well. And they start kidnapping people. And it's actually the ransom money from kidnapping Westerners that were paid by Western governments that gave ISIS the seed money it needed to establish its Islamic state. But mm. this would have never happened had the U.S. not been arming and funding a bunch of groups to collapse the Syrian state because it was the collapse of that state and the collapse of law and order, if you will, that made it possible for people who were coming in to be journalists or NGO workers or whatever to get kidnapped by these groups and then get sold off to mm -hmm. ISIS, who then made like tens of millions of dollars from these kidnappings. So the rise of ISIS, you know, the U.S. is so complicit in the rise of ISIS. And it even goes back to before that. I mean, ISIS couldn't have existed had you not had an al-Qaeda in Iraq and you had an al-Qaeda in Iraq mm -hmm. because the U.S. overthrew Saddam Hussein. So it's like the same mistake over or, you know, over and over again. And when once ISIS did take over large swaths of Iraq and Syria, I mean, a huge territory, that's when the Obama administration got nervous because they were like, OK, this actually poses a threat to us. It's one thing if it's posing like a local threat to the Syrians, we want the government to collapse. But now it's posing a threat internationally because you have an, an international network of uh, of jihadists who are going in and who, you know, this is like the next, you know, the, the next big Al-Qaeda problem. Um, and so that's when the U.S. started doing something very contradictory, which it was, you know, it stopped 
arming and funding the rebel groups in Syria as much, but it continued to arm and fund them, which continued to feed ISIS. And those rebel groups were working alongside ISIS. Well, at the same time, the U.S. started putting resources into fighting ISIS. So it's Mm -hmm. like you're lighting the fire on the one hand, and then you're trying to put it out on the other hand. I mean, it was just a complete Mm -hmm. mess of a policy. And just to crystallize one of the ironies, I mean, you've kind of alluded to it, but but to underscore it, uh, you know, in the course of fighting, uh, you know, kind of both ISIS and the enemy of ISIS, that is to say the state of Syria, uh, and any, uh, Iranians who were, who were helping Syria, um, we became kind of de facto allies of these Al Qaeda affiliates. And even though I'm sure we didn't try to funnel weapons to them, I assume, I, I take Ford at his word, um, A, uh, weapons wound up in their hands and B, our so our so-called allies in the region uh, were were also funneling weapons in, and in some cases just handing them directly to the Al Qaeda oh, yeah. affiliates. These these uh, Salafi jihadists you refer to. Now let me ask you to do a little thought experiment. Now I don't I don't know that it was you know America was not the only outside actor by any means. You know Turkey, Saudi Arabia felt. They, they felt compelled to get involved and it's, it's not clear that America would have had the leverage to prevent them from getting involved. But still, just as a thought experiment, if you could have excluded outside involvement, if no weapons had gone in, um, uh, you know, into Syria, do you have a kind of a conception of what would have happened? I mean, my assumption is that uh, the protests, which were initially peaceful protests, uh, w- would have, um, they would have been suppressed and I assume it would have been brutal and, uh, Assad would still be in power, but he's in power anyway. And so it, on balance, you know, would have been a, a, a better world. No huge, uh, refugee exodus that freaks out people who decide to vote for Trump and vote for Brexit. No, you know, just all kinds of after effects. Um, that wouldn't, um, have been there. Uh, but on the other hand, I've also heard, uh, people, this, uh, woman, uh, is it Chenoweth? She's a, she's a scholar of kind of like, uh, um, you know, peaceful protest. I've heard her, th- her say that she thinks conceivably peaceful protests could have had a big impact and carried the day, led to real reform. Do you, do you have a do you do you have a view? Do you have a position on the thought experiment? Like what if we could magically exclude the weapons from pouring in? Mm-hmm. What would have happened? Yeah, I mean, all we can do is speculate, right? But I think it's fair to say what we know would have not happened is there wouldn't have there wouldn't have been a ten year long war, right? Mm-hmm. There wouldn't that war. I mean, the bloodshed would not. This many people wouldn't have died. There wouldn't have been this much destruction because that would have prevented a war from a civil war from taking place. I I don't think it's necessarily I don't agree with the fact that the protests were peaceful from day one. I think there was two streams of protests, and that's probably even simplifying it too much. But there certainly were like liberal types who protested, particularly in the cities in Damascus and other places, the kinds of people we would sympathize with who could want things that you and I would want, you know, just basic political reforms, more freedom of speech, more, uh, just more freedoms generally, right? Cause Syria does have, you know, does need to change. There are things about Syria that do need to change. Uh, and there's, there was that taking place, but also in parallel, there were, there were 
riots, I guess maybe is the right words, violent riots taking place in other areas where there was, you know, uh, attacks on police stations and attacks on anything that represented the state in various villages. This was more in the countryside and rural areas, the areas where the ultimately the armed groups that were Syrian did typically come from. Um, so, I, you know, it's not necessarily like this, this, this kind of narrative that a lot of people do like to put forward. It was like a super simplistic. There was these beautiful, glorious protests. It's not that simple. Um, that said, that doesn't excuse what the government did. I mean, the government reacted in ways it shouldn't have. Um, that said, there were concessions that the government did make. The state made concessions. They let out political prisoners. They were told till they, they were, it was a demand to let, to let out the political prisoners. And they did it. And, you know, the, some people say, oh, this was a conspiracy. They were just letting out Islamists who then keep, became a part of the uprising, which is true. They let out political prisoners. Some of those political prisoners happened to be in prison because they fought the jihad in Iraq, um, you know, or they were affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. And when they came out, they joined these rebel groups or became commanders in them. But they also did let out like other political prisoners too. That demand, there was also a bit like there, there, I do think there would have been more concessions. Do I think Syria would have changed and become an ideal, lovely, beautiful democracy? Probably not. Do I think there would have been no repression towards protesters? No. I mean, that's silly. Every protesters, protests are repressed everywhere, whether in Syria or whether in the United States, some worse than others. But the most important thing about that thought experiment you know, we can sit here and speculate all day about how things might have gone. What we do know is Syria wouldn't be shattered the way it is today. Um, it wouldn't have been shattered by this war. There wouldn't be rubble everywhere. And, you know, I think one thing that's really important for people to understand is while the physical war that was fought, the hot war, is largely over, except for like some, you know, except for maybe parts of Idlib, it's mostly over, right? Mm-hmm. Syrians are going through something that for a lot of them feels even more devastating than the war, which is the ramifications of the U.S. sanctions on Syria. I mean, this is one of the most restrictive and severe sanctions ever imposed on a country. I'm talking about the Caesar sanctions, were, mm-hmm. which are totally bipartisan. This prevents Syria's access to everything. Since those sanctions went into place, um, the like the Syrian currency has crashed even more. Hyperinflation is completely uncontrollable. And people have no future there. They can't rebuild their homes because they can't, Syria can't import the materials it needs to just rebuild things. You know, uh, Syria used to have one of the best medical systems in the region and it was free. It was freely accessible. Now, you know, the running joke is that Lebanese ambulance has more equipment than a Syrian hospital. That's how bad the, ho- the the medical situation in Syria is. People are dying of preventable diseases. You know, if they have cancer, well, if you get cancer in Syria, you're screwed. Like you can't get chemo. Uh, you need dialysis. You're screwed because, you know, the dialysis machines, they need to be maintained. Sometimes you need to get replacement parts. And guess what? The sanctions prevent you from being able to import those replacement parts. And on and on and on and on. Syria has a fuel crisis. Uh, the fuel crisis is largely a result of the fuel shortage, I should say, is largely the result of the fact that Syria has been split. It's been balkanized. You know, there's Syria, there's a Syrian government territory. Then there's also the north, which is, you know, basically under the control of these these rebel groups, these Salafi jihadist groups, as well as the Turkish military. Um, you know, that's probably never going to go back to Syria. This is and around then, I- Idlib, uh, Idlib. Yeah, this yeah. is around Idlib and its surrounding areas. And then you have the northeast of Syria, which is what everybody calls the Kurdish area, though it's actually not majority Kurdish. But it is under the administration of the Syrian Democratic Forces or the SDF, which is 
essentially uh, a rebranded Syrian PKK or YPG, but the PKK is considered like a terrorist group. And so as not to upset Turkey, the U.S. literally renamed them the, the SDF so they could fund them and be allies with them. And their, over, their administration of this area is overseen by the U.S. So the SDF controls this area. The YPG controls this area of the Northeast. Uh, this area is where 70% of Syrian wheat reserves are, or, or 70% of Syria's wheat comes from this area. It's the most fertile land in Syria. It's also where all the oil reserves are. So Syria is being denied its own oil. It actually has to buy it back from the SDF. It has to buy back its own oil because of the situation the U.S. has created of, of balkanizing Syria. But it can't well, afford it. And the U.S. Own- occupies some oil-rich territory, right? The U.S. troops, it's its not a big contingent, but it's kind of precious land we're controlling, oh, yeah. right? I, yeah. it's uh, There's like Al-Omar oil base for, or, or oil field, for example. And Deir Zor is under the, is literally American troops are stationed there. Um, and Trump, you know, Trump told us the, the reality of America's, you know, a, a, presence there is to protect the oil. Um, but it also, again, it denies the vast majority of Syrians live in Syrian government territory and it denies the Syrian government the ability to access its own oil and wheat and also even buy it back because it doesn't have the hard currency to buy it back because its economy is in ruins because of U.S. sanctions. So and then also there's the problem of inside Syria because the economy is ruined and under sanction and can't grow and can't do anything, can't produce anything anymore. Uh, it's like the Syrian elites are basically like just kind of like eating at the state itself. And so it's become a more corrupt place. I mean, corruption is out of control in Syria. That's what sanctions do. It actually creates more corruption mm-hmm. uh, among elites who then monopolize various industries. It creates a black market for everything. And then people make money off of the black market. And only a small group of people can even access services and goods. I mean, it's a complete disaster in Syria right now. They used to have electricity all day. They don't anymore. They get like if they're lucky, they'll get like three hours or four hours of electricity a day. It's a complete mess and it doesn't have to be this way, but it's almost like the U.S. has given up on the idea of regime change in Syria. But because their scheme to overthrow the government in Syria didn't work, it's like they're punishing the government now with sanctions that hurt everyone and hurt hurts everyone. Like everyone I know in Syria that I've met over the years I would say like two thirds of them have left the country. Like mm-hmm. anyone who can get out is trying to get out. And it's more so because of the sanctions at this point. It makes it impossible to live. So, um, you, you've, you know, you've spent time in Syria and I, I guess, you know, if you could, this is pretty much an extension of what you've been talking about, but I'm curious about two things. I mean, uh, first of all, w- roughly what percentage of the population would you say stood behind the regime during the civil war? Like how much popular support did Assad have during the civil war? A, and then B, um, what percentage of the population would you say is kind of deeply unhappy with American policy towards Syria, in particular, the sanctions? I mean, you don't have data. This, these would be rough guesses and you don't have guesses, to, yeah. you don't have to answer at all, but. I don't think Americans have a very clear conception of either of those things. I don't. I really don't. So I think across the board, there is no Syrian that's happy with American foreign policy. None. I wouldn't like even 
I mean, except for maybe the people who lobbied for the Syria sanctions, but they don't live in Syria. Um, I don't they're think ex- anyone- They are in- exiles, so they're like what yeah, the, Cub- the yeah. Cuban lobby is to Cuba, kind of? Yeah. And they're very powerful. I would say the Syrian, the Syria lobby in the U.S. is one of the most powerful lobbies. Uh, lots of money, lots of access, um, and that they got the Caesars, they lobbied really hard for the Caesar sanctions. But they're probably not even happy with U.S. policy because they probably think the U.S. should be strangling Syria even more. Um, but as for people in Syria, I've never met anybody in Syria who thinks U.S. foreign policy is good. And I bet you you could extend that to include the people living in the Northeast area under the administration of the SDF. They're probably not very happy with U.S. foreign policy right now on Syria. Maybe even in Idlib, they're not happy. But in Syrian government territory, they blame they blame Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Qatar for destroying their country. And of course, the U.S. Um, they see it as an international conspiracy to destroy Syria. That's how they view it. Uh, as simple, like that's, it's very, you know, simple that term. As for how they feel about the government, you know, I, I would say there's probably a lot more people than before who are maybe unhappy with Assad, uh, because at this point there's no economy. So what you have is like militias who take bribes and steal, um, and force and like, and, and extort. That's what the state is becoming. It's becoming a place where that's normal because how mm-hmm. else are people going to make money to feed their families? Right? That, that's, that's the electricity going out. It'll come Your back. electricity just went up and yet your internet persists. Well, uh, I have a little, I have a little, uh, I have a little like battery thing for the internet. So it stays on for the because few this seconds. This is a but, predictable thing. Yeah. So but this is Lebanon, right? Uh, Lebanon is, Lebanon, by the way, is not immune from the policy on Syria. Uh, this region is very interconnected. Lebanon used to take, I think, something like 10% of its power came from Syria. Because of the Caesar sanctions, Syria's neighbors can no longer trade with Syria or they will be subject to sanctions. So Lebanon can no longer take power from Syria, its neighbor, uh, and it can no longer officially like trade certain things with Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Lebanon's impacted as well. And then also the Lebanese economic collapse ha- ha- hurt Syria because a lot of Syrians had their money in Lebanese banks and now they have nothing. Um, and it's actually the same with, I know I'm getting a little bit off on a tangent, but it's actually the same with Iraq. I was in Iraq I think two or three weeks ago. Um, and I actually went to Iraq thinking, oh, I can get away from the electricity cuts because like Lebanon has these crazy electricity cuts. Uh, and the day I got there that night, it was, it was like 120 degrees outside that night, the entire Iraqi electricity grid shut down. Um, and part of the reason it shut down was because Iraq takes power from Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it pays for that power. And because of U.S. sanctions, Iraq has not been able to make payments to Iran. So Iran and Iran also has its own local demands for for power mm-hmm. uh, and it needs the money. So Iran shut it off. And so you had these electricity cuts in Iraq that had that had partly to do with U.S. sanctions that it can't just pay its neighbor for something. It would be like and, if somebody... And the Iraqi people know this. Like when it's 120 degrees and they don't have AC, they know that like it's American sanctions that are to blame. Depends. It depends who. It depends who. Because there's different narratives. Iraq is also split the way that Lebanon is, though in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, the Iraqis who are like pro-Iran see it that way. But then there's, of course, pro-American Iraqis, though I think they're more of a minority. Um, but there are pro-American Iraqis. Uh, and they, of course, would say that it's uh, they would blame it on something else. But it mm-hmm. also, it's not fair to say it's just because of sanctions. I said partly because 
Iraq also has a very corrupt system. Thank you, America. They, America put in place a very corrupt system in Iraq. Um, and as a result, you have uh, mismanagement of all kinds of sectors, including the electricity sector, mm-hmm. uh, mismanagement and waste. So that's a part of it, too. But th- th- it depends who you ask. But a lot of Iraqis do see it as like, well, why can't we just pay Iran for electricity? Um, but the, 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 so the question that you had asked uh, related to Syrians and how they view U.S. policy or their own government, you know, it's also important to remind people that Syria was fighting an existential fight. Uh, it wasn't just to keep the Assad regime in place. It was also to prevent the imposition of an Islamic state uh, that would, you know, change life for a lot of people in a way that is completely unacceptable. And I think a lot of Americans would agree that it would be unacceptable to live under the kind of state that these groups wanted to put in place. So as a result... The support for the war, I mean, it was also their sons and daughters and fathers who were fighting in the Syrian army and dying fighting ISIS and Al-Qaeda and, you know, all of its clones. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're seen as martyrs, as heroes, the people who died fighting this war. So, so, So during the civil war, did it seem like the Syrian government, because of this threat, uh, maintained a support of the majority of the Syrian population in, in your view. Of course, I mean, I guess yeah. the Kurds are, the, are kind of their own thing. Um, I mean, they, they, they wanted autonomy. Uh, uh, well, they would like sovereignty, but, but, um, is, is actually, that because, yeah, actually the Kurd, the Kurds aren't looking for, that's another misconception. Like they're, they're not the YPG, I should say, is in a bit of a predicament itself because they never were interested in joining this regime change effort. Their entire, the the whole, their whole role in the Northeast was to fight ISIS because ISIS had taken over their, their Mm -hmm. towns. Um, and they allied with the Americans to do that. Uh, and now they have control over this territory. They're not necessarily trying to create a state though. They're, they actually believe in some form of federalism from what I understand. But anyways, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Well, the question is how how much support uh, from the Syrian people would you say the government had during the Civil War, because I think the, the 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 perception in America, well, certainly a lot of people tried to present the narrative that it's like dictator against his people, and you can tell because uh, uh, you know his people were killed in the course of fighting the Civil War. Some of them by government troops, you know, no doubt about it. There was some indiscriminate bombing and stuff, um, but. Uh, so that uh, is one common view, I think, in America. How much support would you say the regime had during during the Civil War? I think anybody living in regime territory in, in government areas was 100 percent supportive of the effort to fight these groups because the alternative to that was to be under the control of those groups. Mm-hmm. And they saw it as a fight. They see the, the thing about the Syrian government, the Syrian population in the government areas is they never differentiated between ISIS, Al Qaeda, Ahrar al-Sham, Jaysh al-Islam. These groups were all the same to them because they were actually, they have the same ideology. There was no, like the U.S. was always like, oh, this rebel group, this rebel group, this, these people are in charge in East Aleppo. These people are in charge in Duma. These people are in charge in East Ghouta. For Syrians, they were all the same. Mm-hmm. It was all the f- a fight against one, like one ideology. And it was an ideology that was completely unacceptable to them. So they were totally supportive. It was for them, it was existential. Like if I'm living in America and I'm in Washington DC and people from, you know, the countryside of Virginia and Maryland, the KKK and affiliated Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, all of these different, 
you know, far right fanatical groups, uh, were surrounding DC and had taken over other areas. That's the situation that was happening in Syria. And, and let's, let's say this happened, you know, while someone I don't like is president. I really wouldn't care at that point who was president. I would just support whoever was protecting me from these crazy groups. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, that was the mentality in Syria. And you know, I would extend that view probably to the people who are in rebel areas as well. Not all of them because there was a lot of people in rebel areas who were being terrorized by the local rebels. But you know, probably the family of rebel fighters or probably locals who were just getting bombed by the government. Maybe they felt that they were being protected in the same way by these rebel groups and that they, you know, there was like some sort of existential threat for them from the government. So I would maybe extend that view somewhat to them, but I do think it's important to recognize what was the intention of each side. The intention of the Syrian government side, contradictory to what the entire West's narrative is about Syria, wasn't to genocide Sunnis or to like ethnically cleanse them or all of these crazy theories that we see put forth by weapons industry funded think tankers in America uh, and lobbyists on K Street. But their intention was to prevent the collapse of their country from turning into Libya and from turning into Iraq after the U.S. invaded. That was what they were doing, right? They, in their mind, were fighting the equivalent of Nazis. Uh, the other side, what was the other side fighting for? They weren't fighting for democracy. They weren't fighting for freedom and liberation. They, or maybe they, their view was freedom and liberation, but not what we would call freedom and liberation. They were fighting to impose a sectarian Islamic state where women are removed from public life and have no rights and where Sunni, you either have to be Sunni or you die. And where you, you know, if you're from a minority group, you get your home taken away or you're killed or you're first forcibly converted. This was the reality they did impose in places. And, and, so, and you, you use the term Islamic State, but I take you to mean that even if the Al Qaeda affiliate, the, the non, the non ISIS, uh, jihadists had won, they would have imposed the kind of state yeah. you're describing. That was the fear. Yes, and that's that's what they did impose. Everywhere that they ruled, that's exactly what they imposed to varying degrees. Uh it sounds like maybe Raqqa was a little bit worse than, you know, Idlib. Yeah. But essentially it was the same idea. And East wherever you went, East Lebanon, I mean, that's what's crazy. Even if you're gonna be critical of the Syrian government, which of course you should be, mm-hmm. it's a war and everybody was committing crimes. That's what happens in wars. And the Syrian government is certainly far from perfect. But even if you're going to be a huge critic of the Syrian government, I mean, the fact that there were people writing articles and in writing books saying that East Aleppo was liberated when these outside groups, armed gangs came in and, and, and took over half the city and pushed people out of their homes, which is what happened and imposed an Islamic state in East Aleppo. I mean, that you, the fact that you had liberal Westerners calling that liberation was just like utterly shocking to me. Um, and you still have that narrative being told, but you know, that's just not the reality on the ground. And people who were there to experience it know that like you can, you can write these things in American journals and, and, and newspapers, and you can write books in English all you want saying the reality was something different, but the people who were there, who were in Aleppo, who were in Duma, who were in East Ruta, who were in, all of these places where, where the rebels took over, they know the reality of what happened. And 
that's, you know, that's what you hear from them and they don't get a voice. They don't, they don't even get the opportunity to, to, to voice their own reality because America is so obsessed with dominating the narrative around Syria to benefit its own, you know, view of what happened there. Yeah, I gotta say the, the, the narrative you've presented is not a common one in, uh, I, I promised at the beginning that you'd say things that are not often said in uh, mainstream media in America and I think We've delivered. Um, now I think you've, you've got to go pretty soon. I, I, if you do, then, then you do. I, I could, I could ask questions all day. It's such, um. I can I maybe do one more and then I do have to run. Uh, okay. I, uh, what would it be? Um, well, I guess th- this is, uh, you'll have to be brief because I'm sure this is a can of worms Uh-oh. of its own. <laughs> but why are, why are, I mean, I'm willing to believe that Americans were just naive and they thought that we could actually, as strange a way as this may sound in your telling, uh, uh, of, of in- installing a liberal democracy in Syria. I, I'm willing to, Ameri- there's no, no, uh, limit to American idealism and naivete sometimes. Maybe we thought we could do that, but, 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 but the other actors, Qatar, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, who were sending these weapons to the jihadi groups directly, right? As I understand it, like, why? I mean, in principle, these groups should be threats, uh, certainly to Saudi Arabia and Qatar, right? I I mean, why are they, well, I guess you're you're shaking your head, but you would think nominally, right, that, look, they're not happy with the rulers of Saudi Arabia and Qatar, right? I mean, the, the, the jihadist groups, like, they'd be happy to depose them. I guess my question is, why are these outside, why are these regional powers so highly motivated to depose Assad? I mean, I just, I don't know much about the history, the politics. They must have their reasons to find him so threatening or to find him plus Iran threatening or something. But I don't I mean, totally I think get all it. Of the, all of them have different interests and that's where they were funding different groups. Uh, Qatar was funding uh, Nusra which is the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria and funding the Muslim Brotherhood affiliated groups. Uh, Qatar is the Muslim Brotherhood country. Um, and, you know, Qatar didn't have the interesting about Qatar is it didn't have a bad relationship with Syria. Um, for Qatar, you know, I, I don't know a hundred percent why they did this, but I would assume it's the Muslim Brotherhood interest. Um, and how, ha- and also having a government in Syria that's more closely aligned with them. And there was a GCC tug of war here too, because Saudi Arabia and Qatar don't like each other, right? They've had problems in the past. Uh, Saudi Arabia hates the Muslim Brotherhood and views them as very, very threatening to Saudi national security interests. So they were actually funding Salafi jihadist groups that were not Muslim Brotherhood affiliated or working with the Muslim Brotherhood as they viewed it. So they were funding Jaysh al-Islam, for example, in Duma. Um, there were, there were specific groups that were be funding, be, be, that were being funded by specific countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, Saudi Arabia wants a, a state in Syria that isn't antagonistic towards Saudi interests. And Assad is, um, cause he aligns with Hezbollah. He aligns with Iran, right? And mm-hmm. that's the opposite of what Saudi Arabia wants. So Saudi Arabia funding these groups was to overthrow the Syrian government, but also to make sure if it did get overthrown, there would be a vested Saudi interest there. Um, and then you of course have have, you know, Turkey, which has a lot of interests in Syria. I mean, one of the first things that the Turkish-backed rebel groups did in Aleppo and, and in the north of Syria is they completely stripped the factories of their industrial equipment and sold it off to Turkey. And so now all of this equipment that was making socks or medicine or whatever it was being used to make in these factories, Syria used to have a huge factory base in northern Syria, 
is now being used in Turkey and probably Syrian refugees are, are, are the workers there getting paid far less than they may have gotten paid 15 years ago using that same equipment in Syria. So, of course, there's like a monetary interest in that, a compete and competing interest with uh, a neighboring country and its industry versus your industry. But that wasn't the primary reason um, for Turkey. It was also, you know, I think to put a government there that was more in Turkey's favor, like another like a, that could be like maybe a Turkish client state or a Turkish ally. And that was the case with all of these countries. Um, and of course, they played a role to benefit the U.S. as well. You know, Turkey played. If you remember the, you know, the U.S. uh the U.S. policy in Afghanistan in the 1980s, Pakistan was very much, you know, played the role of Turkey in the Syrian war, where that's where all the weapons got funneled through. Mm-hmm. Uh That gave a lot. That's where all the fighters came from. A lot of the fighters would go back and forth between refugee camps in Pakistan uh, and Afghan and Afghanistan. And you saw something similar with Turkey. But Turkey also became the the international uh hub for. Uh, the people who joined the foreign fighters, the, the jihadist foreign fighters who came from all over the world to join this jihad. They came through Turkey. I mean, everybody, you've heard, you saw reporters saying that, you know, anybody who took a plane to Istanbul or anywhere in Turkey from like the years of like 2012 uh, to 2016 would just like the, the planes would just be full of people for, of, of young men coming to fight the jihad. And they were pretty open about that. They were even recruiting at the Turkish airport. Um, so yeah, that was ultimately, you know, and then the Lebanon's po- political parties that wanted a better, you know, a better uh, government in Syria that was more aligned with their interests. Everybody was just, you know, it was everybody was doing what was in their interest and what was their interest, you know, helped destroy Syria. That's yeah. where I would leave that. Okay. Well, that's, uh, sobering. Um, yeah. <laughs> so where can people, where can people find your stuff now? What your Twitter handle is what? My Twitter handle is at Rania Kalik. It's R-A-N-I-A-K-H-A-L-E-K. And I am a journalist for Breakthrough News. I host a program called Rania Kalik Dispatches. You can listen to it anywhere you get podcasts. Just look up Rania Kalik Dispatches. And you can watch all of my episodes in video form on the Breakthrough News YouTube page. So follow Breakthrough News on YouTube. Okay. And my Twitter handle is Robert Ryder. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching, listening. If you feel like rating and reviewing the right show, I would not get in your way. So thank you so <laughs> much, Rania. Um, you'll have to, to come back uh, down the road and uh, give us some uh, counter counter MSM narrative again. Absolutely. Happy to anytime. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>